Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 48 of Russia's brutal and bloody invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine. We're covering two major stories this afternoon. In New York City, police say a suspect is still on the loose after a terrifying gun and smoke bomb attack on the subway this morning just before 8.30 a.m. At least 29 people were injured, 10 of whom were shot. Five remain in critical condition at this hour. The New York police commissioner says a man wearing a gas mask took a canister out of his bag and then started shooting as smoke filled the subway. I will have much more on that in a moment. Back here in Ukraine, it is a rush to evacuate civilians from the eastern part of the country as clearer signs emerge that Russia is ramping up its preparations for a full-scale attack on the eastern region. Ukraine's deputy prime minister says nearly 3,000 civilians were able to flee today from some of the cities most affected by fighting, including Mariupol and Berdyansk. CNN has obtained this new video of fighting in Mariupol earlier today. You can see the black smoke rising from residential areas outside a shipping yard. And another new video posted to social media shows a large column of Russian armored vehicles and trucks carrying soldiers and equipment. This was filmed inside Russia, right across the border from Ukraine's Donbass region. Today, the Pentagon confirmed the U.S. is looking into reports that Russian forces have used what may be a chemical weapon in Mariupol. The military governor of the region says three people were taken to the hospital but are expected to survive. In his latest address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky assured the world that Ukrainian forces can end this siege of Mariupol, but only, only if the West sends more heavy weaponry and soon. If we got jets and enough heavy armored vehicles, the necessary artillery, we would be able to do it. But we still have to agree on this. We still have to persuade. We still have to squeeze out the necessary decisions. I am sure that we will get almost everything we need, but not only time is being lost. The lives of Ukrainians are being lost, lives that can no longer be returned. Let's get straight to CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, who is now in Dnipro, Ukraine. And Clarissa, we see these videos of Russian troops appearing to be amassing near the Donbass region in the southeastern corner of Ukraine. What, what is the latest on the fighting there? 
So, Jake, one Ukrainian local authority here has said that they expect this Russian offensive now to begin any day, really, potentially even as soon as tomorrow. That following the images that you're talking about, they say that they are seeing uh, heavy equipment now being pulled towards the front lines. The one thing this official also added, which I thought was interesting, is that something is playing in the Ukrainians' favor here, which is that there has been heavy rain today and Heavy rains are expected for the next few days. That means, in principle, that those Russian forces, if they were to push ahead with this offensive, would need to use roads as opposed to going through fields, which would be extremely muddy. And if they use those roads, that gives Ukrainian forces a much better chance of defending themselves, of course, using those anti-tank missiles, those javelins that we have seen them use with great effect in other parts of the country. Now, this, uh, as all this is happening, the civilians uh, in many of these areas are continuing to pay a heavy price, Jake. Uh, one official saying that 60,000 people have been living in basements, in bunkers, in shelters for a month now. There has just been relentless shelling going on in a number of towns, particularly in the city of Severodonetsk. That is right by the front line. It's a city of 100,000 people, roughly. Some 400 people have been buried in the last 40 days. And what local authorities are saying, Jake, is that the morgues now uh, in towns like Severodonetsk are at full capacity. They can't take any more bodies. They don't have electricity. And they're no longer able even to access their cemeteries. So they're being forced to do something similar to what we saw when we visited the northern town of Chernigiv, whereby they clear a wood and take a bulldozer and create these large trenches to try to bury their dead in. Evacuations are ongoing but they have been thwarted somewhat by uh, that horrific attack on the Kramatorsk railway that resulted in the deaths of 57 innocent civilians. That, of course, has meant that many Ukrainians are simply too frightened to get on those trains that would ferry them to relative safety, Jake. And Clarissa, civilians are starting to return to the areas in and around Kyiv uh, after Russian forces withdrew from that area. Uh, but now President Zelensky says those Russian troops left behind not just evidence of atrocities, but tens of thousands of mines. That's right, Jake. I mean, there is a Herculean effort now going on in these areas that were occupied to try to demine these areas. A lot of these roads are completely impassable. Indeed, when we were driving just today, uh, along the road. We saw an anti-tank mine just sitting at the side of the road. Ukrainian forces are finding so many of them that literally they're just being forced to push them to the side uh, as they continue to look for more. And obviously there are instances where this is resulting in catastrophic accidents. Uh, there was a case outside, again, that city that I mentioned before that we visited last week of Chernigiv, where uh, a, a car basically ran over one of these mines, flipped over, uh, and was completely obliterated. And, and this makes it all the more difficult because, of course, if you can't use trains to evacuate people out, if you can't use roads to get people to safety or to bring people back to their homes, it becomes all the more difficult to move supplies around, to move aid in, and to move people out, Jake. CNN's Clarissa Ward in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much. CNN's Phil Black. 
is here with me uh, in Lviv. And, and Phil, uh, the Pentagon said today that they're looking into these reports from Ukrainians in the military, Ukrainians in the government, that the, the Russians may have used chemical weapons uh, in Mariupol. Uh, what do we know about this? So the Ukrainian soldiers on the ground in Mariupol say this weapon, whatever it was, was delivered by a drone. It dropped, it exploded, it dispersed what they're calling an unknown poison. And it impacted a a small group of people, a handful of people. Not seriously. Three people needed treatment. It seems the symptoms were not serious. They're mostly respiratory problems, eye irritations. No one knows what this was for sure. The Ukrainians, US officials, UK officials say they are desperate to find out just in case this is the much predicted chemical weapons escalation that has been talked about through this war. US officials today are talking about the knowledge they have, the information they have, which suggests that Russia could use a mix of a crowd control agent and more potent chemicals, essentially a more brutal form of tear gas. They don't know for sure, but it's one theory as that would explain potentially what was experienced in Mariupol today. A top British official said today that, quote, all options are, are on the table for how the West would respond if Russia does use uh, chemical weapons in Ukraine, uh, we were all recall, of course, uh, when Bashar al-Assad, who was allied with the Russians, used chemical weapons uh, in Syria against his own people. What, what's on the table for the West if the Russians do use chemical weapons? That same official said it is useful to maintain ambiguity when talking about the possible response. And that's because, as you point to, there, there is no good response, and particularly in this war, too, because any military response could result in an escalation. And the one true policy red line for the West in this war is ensuring there is no shooting war between NATO and Russia. Yeah. Uh, during a press conference today, Vladimir Putin said peace talks with Ukraine hit a dead end. Uh, a Ukrainian presidential advisor says uh, the peace talks are ongoing. How do you mm. reconcile this difference? Well, Putin also said that he's going to continue his special military operation until it is successful. So it certainly doesn't point to optimism in terms of diplomacy. The Ukrainians admit that this is taking place against the emotional backdrop of those recent atrocities, and it's taking place at a very low level, uh, subgroups, online. But they say, and they've been saying for a while now, they're essentially continuing this on the off chance, the slight chance that it could result in a breakthrough that saves some lives. And even if there's not much optimism, it is worth pursuing for that reason alone. Yeah, Putin also said that the atrocities in Bucha were fake, which is obviously a tremendous lie. Phil Black, thank you so much. Ukraine's prosecutor general is telling CNN that her office is building more than 5,800 cases of war crimes from Russia's invasion. This afternoon, I spoke to Wayne Jordash. Wayne is the managing partner of the global rights compliance law firm and foundation, one of the many investigators here on the ground in places such as Bucha, trying to document what truly happened. I started by asking Wayne what he has seen in his multiple trips to Bucha. Well, Bucha is full at the moment of um, investigators and prosecutors and um, st state security, counterintelligence, all trying to investigate uh, a range of uh, possible war crimes and crimes against humanity. There are um, inspections of Russian facilities, which uh, include um, blood-stained uh, detention centers. There's mass graves where bodies are being pulled out on a daily basis. There's buildings which are destroyed um, by um, Russian artillery uh, with no apparent um, military focus. So it's, it's a massive crime scene, I would say. I understand uh, investigators are also using drones to help with the investigation. How, how does that work? 
Well, in order to investigate and uh, a scene, one of the first things you should do um, when you're talking about a scene like Butcher or many of the other towns is to try to get an overview of the town and get an overview of where the Russians were based and where the likely war crimes or other violations of international law occurred. So having this overview is really important before then descending in to ensure preservation of the scene, uh, retrieval of um, items which might be evidence, and thereafter interviewing witnesses to discover what happened in those targeted places. The military governor of Donetsk told CNN today that Russian forces around Mariupol are using mobile crematoriums in order to get rid of the bodies of the corpses of dead civilians. Take a listen. Taking bodies of the, of the dead in the streets and the dead from uh, um, collapsing buildings. Uh, they're taking them out into the territory not controlled by Ukraine uh, and destroying the bodies there. If Russia is truly doing this, destroying the bodies of Ukrainians it's, it's, it has killed, uh, destroying evidence, will we ever know the full extent uh, of the crimes that Russia has committed while in Ukraine? I think we'll have a good picture. I think um, there are many ways to build a war crimes case or a crime against humanity case or even a genocide case. Um, witness evidence is important, uh, but so are forensics. So are, as you've just mentioned, uh, drones, examination of the scene. Of course, um, if that is true, the Russian uh, government uh, can cover up some crimes. But I think uh, it's difficult. It, 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 the, the scenes I've seen, the sites that I've seen, show increasingly that the crimes were widespread and systematic. That is, um, they are likely to be crimes against humanity. With the best will in the world and the best crematoriums in the world, it's very difficult to hide these types of crimes. Yes, some of the detail may disappear, but I think with focus from the prosecution, focus from civil society, focus from international experts, much can be uncovered. You were telling me that when you were in Bucha, you, you saw a grave with a, a woman buried with her two small children. Yeah, what, what is clear is that, um, to me at least so far, when you look at the patterns, um, you have some towns where there's um, a huge amount of civilian destruction of uh, buildings. And then you have towns like Butcher where the, 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 the level of destruction rose to a savagery, I would say, um, which seems to have targeted the most vulnerable, from children to women to those detained. Um, and the purpose is not very clear. It, it looks like a level of destruction for destruction's sake. No obvious military advantage, uh, no obvious purpose. Destruction seems to have been... The, the, the name of that um, moment and the name of that game. And I think, you know, the mass graves which are being uncovered of civilians within them, uh, including women and children, speak to that um, level of destruction. The narrative appears to have moved from war crimes to crimes against humanity. And the question I think for all of us to ask is whether this escalation of violence turned into genocide. Um, and I think women in chi and, and children in, in graves um, speaks to that.
Wayne Jordas, we appreciate your time and we appreciate the work you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our other big story, horror on a New York subway. A smoke bomb set off, then 10 people shot. What police are saying about the manhunt for the shooter, plus President Biden's plan announced just moments ago to try to help ease high gas prices in the U.S. due in part to Russia's invasion here in Ukraine. We turn back to the U.S. for breaking news in our national lead. An urgent manhunt is now underway after 10 people were shot in a New York City subway station. The shooting happened around 8.24 a.m. during morning rush hour at a station in Brooklyn, New York. Police say the shooter exploded a device at the scene and began opening fire inside the train car as it filled with smoke. We are told the suspect was wearing a gas mask and a green construction type vest. He is black and heavyset. Video from inside the subway station shows a chaotic scene as commuters scramble to safety. Smoke can be seen pouring out of the train car as they exited. Other video shows multiple victims inside the train car. One person seen helping an injured and bleeding individual. CNN's Bryn Gingras has the latest on the investigation from New York City. Panic aboard a New York City subway train in Brooklyn this morning. As shots rang out and smoke filled the car, witnesses say... Those people screamed for medical assistance. It was just a scary moment. Authorities swarming the scene. An individual on that train donned what appeared to be a gas mask. He then took a canister out of his bag and opened it. The train at that time began to fill with smoke. He then opened fire, striking multiple people on the subway and in the platform. Ten shot, five of them in critical but stable condition, with six more injured, according to the FDNY, as photos from the scene show blood on the floor of the subway station. This is not being investigated as an act of terrorism at this time. We can also report that although this was a violent incident, reportedly we have no one with life-threatening injuries as a result of this case. We were stuck in the train, right about to get to reach to the stop, and then, thank goodness, the train moves within a minute. Or I, I don't know what could have happened if he was stuck there for long. The attack leading to a massive manhunt in the city with the suspect still on the loose. He is being reported as a male black, approximately five feet, five inches tall with a heavy build. He was wearing a green construction type vest and a hooded sweatshirt. The color is gray. A gun, multiple high-capacity magazines, fireworks, and gunpowder have been recovered in the station, law enforcement sources say, and they believe the gun jammed during the shooting. New York Mayor Eric Adams, who is in isolation recovering from COVID-19, telling CNN it's too early to dismiss the subway attack as not terror-related. This is terror of someone attempted to terrorize our system uh, they brought in what appears to be some form of smoke device. Uh, they discharged a weapon. And so um, I don't want to be premature in identifying if this was or was not. I think at this time, the investigators are going to do their due diligence to properly identify what happened here. While New York Governor Kathy Hochul on scene today calling for an end to New York's recent wave of violent crime. And we say no more. No more mass shootings. No more disrupting lives. No more creating heartbreak for people just trying to live their lives as normal New Yorkers. It has to end and it ends now. 
And Jake, now we're nearing on eight hours since this incident took place on the subway system and still no custody or no, no suspect rather uh, in custody. We know that law enforcement at the local, the state, the federal level, they are working together, chasing down leads. It'll help according to a source that they have an image that they've gotten um, from an eyewitness cell phone video of the possible suspect. They're looking for a van and how that might be tied to this particular suspect, a U-Haul van. We know U-Haul is actually working with law enforcement. So a lot of leads being chased down here uh, in New York City. But of course, this is a city on edge with this incident happening. Now we know 29 people have been hospitalized tied to it. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingrass in New York for us. Thank you so much. Today's shooting raises questions about security on New York's subway system. I'm going to bring in the CEO of the Real Service. That's next. And we're back in Lviv, Ukraine. Although Russian forces pulled out of some parts of Ukraine, specifically around the Kyiv area, life-threatening dangers are everywhere. CNN's Nima Albagar traveled to Kharkiv. That's a city 640 miles east of here, 300 miles beyond the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv. The area has been subjected to relentless Russian shelling. And Ukrainians there have started finding a hideous type of Russian shell. It's designed to lay on the ground for hours and then explode. Nima followed an emergency response team that has the dangerous job of finding these delayed actions explosives before it's too late. This is the central market area in Kharkiv, and this is the site of most of last night's strikes. We've come here with emergency service first responders because the Russians have come up with a new tactic to ensure that the devastation of their attacks lasts far beyond first impact. Lieutenant Colonel Ihor Ovchorik is the head of the bomb disposal team. The mines explode by themselves and cause damage. These elements can detonate between 3 and 40 hours later, so we have to detonate them remotely to avoid damage to the civilian population. There are unexploded mines all over this area, so they can't get too close. What they do is they wrap plastic explosives around a wire, link it to a detonator. That's then placed next to the unexploded ordnance. They retreat, then they blow it up. A brutal new tactic, leaving death to lie in wait for unsuspecting civilians. Nimal Bagher, CNN, Kharkiv. And our thanks to Nimal Bagher and Kharkiv right there for us. Today, a report revealed what may be the strongest evidence yet of Russia's invasion uh, impacting the pocketbooks of the American people. We're going to ask a member of the Biden administration how the administration is trying to help the average American. That's next. And we're back with breaking news. Just moments ago, President Biden addressed the morning rush hour attack in a subway station in Brooklyn. Ten people were shot. Five remain in critical uh, condition. Uh, President Biden uh, said uh, that they were going to stay uh, on top of the matter until... Uh, everything was solved and the suspect was found. Let's discuss uh, with Jano Lieber. He is the CEO of the Metropolitan Transportation uh, Authority. Thanks so much for joining us. So New York Mayor Eric Adams is telling subway riders that they're going to see a visible police presence around stations in the wake of the shooting. Was the Metro Authority prepared for this? Yeah, I think since Mayor Adams and Governor Hochul came in, Jake, 
they've made subway safety a huge priority. They have done, as we've been asking for some time, to move more officers onto platforms and trains to make them more visible in the system and to be where riders feel vulnerable. Obviously, today we had a terrible episode um, that you know that the NYPD is is investigating and they're determined to take action. But that commitment to subway safety from the governor and the mayor has been in place for some time. And now it's going to be increased even further, I know. Look, the, the criminal who did this is who's responsible, and, and I don't want to suggest anything otherwise. But are you saying that there were no mistakes made uh, that allowed this individual to get away because he committed this violent act in the subways and then escaped? No, no uh, law enforcement authorities made any mistakes uh, in allowing him to escape in any way? I, it's premature to say, but uh, and I'm sure that all the, the, the you know, the post event analysis will take place at an appropriate time. But right now, what we need to focus on is our riders, you know, who, who are so resilient, who are so come back again and again after 9-11, after Hurricane Sandy, after COVID, um, our workforce that powered us through COVID. Uh, this is what New York is all about. It's what the subway system is all about. And after they get this bad guy, I'm sure there'll be lots of discussion about what went wrong. I don't think that the blame falls on anybody other than the criminal. That is my personal instinct. Of course, of course. But law enforcement is there to protect people. I'm just wondering if there was anything that could have been done differently. But as you say, uh, this will be studied uh, uh, in the future. What do you say to New Yorkers who right now do not feel safe riding the subway? Listen, I grew up in New York in the 70s. The system is way safer than it was when I was a kid. But there's no question that we've had a bunch of high-profile incidents and some statistics that are alarming. New Yorkers are committed to the subway because it's what makes New York possible. The density, the ability to get to all the different things New York has to offer, jobs, education, culture. Um, The subway is New York. It also demonstrates our diversity and the way we all get along every day. There's no way New Yorkers are going to back off because one, you know, one maniac decides to ruin uh, people's commutes and, and create one attack. We're going to continue living our lives, and we, we really celebrate our riders and our commitment to New York. Oh, he did, he did a lot more than ruin people's commutes, right? I mean, five people are in critical condition? Absolutely. I don't mean to understate it anyway. Let me rephrase that. 20 people are injured. 10 people took bullets. This is about as serious as an attack gets. But what what we're saying is that New Yorkers are not going to back off from living their lives the same way they've done, again, powering through COVID, powering through 9-11. That is part of our culture. And we're going to make the system safer with the help of a committed mayor and governor. Um, And we're going to make New York as, you know, bring normal life back in New York in every way possible. Subways are key to that. What steps can the Metropolitan Transportation Authority take, the MTA take, to help law enforcement find this gunman? Well, we have almost 10,000 cameras in our system, including you know, almost 600 just on the Brooklyn section of this one line where the attack took place. So we're going to work with the NYPD to capture all that video to find out where this, uh, this criminal may have come in or out of the system and we're also just, you know, reviewing with everybody who is involved all of the information. There's a ton of evidence. I was on the platform today 
The NYPD was right in the middle of analyzing all of it. Uh, and I think they're hot on the trail. Since the beginning of 2022, as you alluded to, there has been a large increase in transit crime in New York compared to the same period in 2021. Um, what are you doing to address this surge in crime? Well, I think I alluded to it earlier. The governor and the mayor made a commitment to subway safety very early on in the new year. Um, well, they have put more officers both on the platforms and on the trains where people feel vulnerable. Um, and there are you know, a ton of other, there's a, an enormous effort to um, reach out to some of the people who have, who for whatever reason, have been sheltering in the subway system. We've got, you know, a population that's been doing that and to really start enforcing more on basic rules of conduct, no smoking, no, no beating the fare, um, no dr open drug use, all of those interdictions, all of those enforcement actions are starting to drive and will continue to drive bad guys out of the system, I believe. Um, we have to get people with mental health issues and need uh, housing to those services. But enforcement of our rules of conduct is also catching some bad guys. And I think that's going to pay off in the long run. Jana Lieber, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Coming up from gas to food to housing, prices for nearly everything in the United States are driving inflation to a 40-year high. Coming up next... The new steps that the Biden administration says they're going to take to try to ease the pain for Americans. Stay with us. Turning to our politics lead, today's alarming new numbers on inflation bring unwelcome news for the Biden administration. Despite a strong job market and increasing rising wages, prices for nearly everything in the United States, from gas to food to housing, are driving inflation to a 40-year high. CNN's Jeff, Jeff Zeleny is traveling with President Biden and has this look at how the White House is trying to ease some of the strain on Americans' pocketbooks. President Biden scrambling today to address the latest grim economic news, with U.S. inflation surging to a new four-decade high. The Consumer Price Index climbed 8.5% in March from a year ago, the fastest annual hike since December 1981 driven largely by rising oil and gas prices after Russia invaded Ukraine. Putin's invasion of Ukraine has driven up gas prices and food prices all over the world. The president taking aim at those high gas prices today while touring an Iowa ethanol plant, where he announced a plan to temporarily allow a higher content of ethanol-blended gasoline to be sold this summer, suspending a ban on the fuel known as E15, which is made of 15% ethanol. It was a rare presidential visit to the small community of Menlo in a conservative county where the economy is on the minds of detractors. For me to compare the price two or three years ago on the same products, today it's tremendously higher. And supporters alike. When people are hurting and in tough times, we're, we really struggle to put blame. You know, and, and we want to try to find the sources. And sometimes the easiest person to blame is the president and the current administration. The president making clear that he hears the concerns as the White House focuses intently on inflation, which has been above 6% for six straight months, while above the Federal Reserve's 2% target. Today's Labor Department report also showed continued spikes in food prices, with the cost of meat up nearly 15% from last year. While the price of used vehicles appears to be leveling off, Prices are still 35% higher than a year ago. 
We've never, we talked about inflation long before there was an invasion, but we also know that factually, if you look at the data, the average gas prices are up a dollar, 80 cents to a dollar. It's about a 25 percent. We've seen increase in gas prices since the start of this invasion. And we know energy prices is a big driver of the inflation data. While deeply troubling to the White House, the U.S. inflation rate is nowhere close to a record, with nearly 15 percent inflation in the early 1980s along with soaring unemployment. Today, a low unemployment rate of 3.6% and a strong demand for workers offers optimism about the prospect for a stronger economy ahead. And President Biden just finished his speech here a few moments ago. He said American pocketbooks should not be determined by the genocide committed by another dictator in another country. Jake, the first time President Biden has used the word genocide talking about Ukraine. But as for inflation, the central question is whether it's hit its peak or if that is still to come. Jake. Jeff Zeleny traveling with the president in Iowa. Thank you so much. Let's discuss all this with Brian Deese. He's the director of the National Economic Council at the White House. Um, So, Brian, obviously inflation in the U.S. is skyrocketing. New numbers from the Labor Department show that the consumer price index rose 8.5 percent for the year that ended in March. That's the highest rate in 40 years. Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said in a statement today, quote, instead of acting boldly, elected officials and the Federal Reserve, quote, continue to respond with half measures and rhetorical failures searching for where to lay the blame. How do you respond? Well, look, what we saw in March was a really elevated inflation number, and it's got the war in Ukraine uh, all over it. Two-thirds of the increase in March was uh, the price of gas at the pump. And as you know, Jake, uh, that is being driven by uh, Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine and the Russian oil coming off the market. Uh, What the president is doing is exactly that, responding boldly and in an unprecedented way. The good news is since uh, the height of gas prices in March, we've seen gas prices come down. And a big part of the reason is the president uh, uh, mandated a release from our strategic petroleum reserve of a million barrels a day of oil onto the market. That's an action that we could take. And then we galvanize the international community to put another 60 million barrels on the market as well. That's had some downward pressure on oil prices. And you saw the president again today taking action on ethanol and E15. So you're seeing a president that is focused on Uh, keeping an international coalition resolved to do what is necessary to counter Putin's actions in Ukraine while doing everything that we can to protect consumers here at home. And that's what he's going to continue to do. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is driving up fuel prices. Nobody disputes that. But we were covering inflation long before Putin invaded Ukraine. Inflation in the United States in the last year is preceded this attack. uh, And Some people hear the president in the White House blaming all of this on Putin and think that's just not accurate. That's just not factual. No, let's be very factual. What I said was in March, the predominance of the increase was because of gas prices. And that is because of Putin's invasion. Two thirds of the increase in March was a result of that. But at the same time, inflation is high in the United States. It's it's high around the world. We are hitting record inflation numbers in the EU and globally. Uh, We are the president and we are very focused on what we can do practically to uh, bring price increases down while also sustaining a strong recovery in the United States. 
that's uh, the president's focus, and it's what he's calling on Congress to do as well. You know, we have legislation in front of Congress right now that would do two things, lower costs for families and lower the deficit. Both of those would have a positive impact on bringing inflation down, and we're certainly hopeful that Congress will act and, and act with the urgency that this circumstance requires. Prices continue to rise. Consumers are facing sticker shock for, for very basic items. Gas prices are up 48%, as you note. Used cars are up 35%. Food costs are up almost 9%. Housing is up 5%. What is the president's message to Americans that are hurting from these price increases? Well, number one, he understands. He understands how this impacts people's pocketbooks and it creates uncertainty in their lives. Number two, he is going to take every action that he can responsibly as president, including historic releases of oil onto the market, including the actions today around E15 to provide some practical relief. And we are seeing some of that, including gas prices coming down. We want it to come down more, but it's important to note that we have seen some reduction. And number three, he is going to keep uh, calling on Congress to take actions to provide some relief to lower costs for families, lower uh, families' utility bills, lower their prescription drug costs, and lower the deficit at the same time. That would make a big impact for people in their lives who are trying to figure out how to make ends meet. Lowering those costs would have a big impact, and so we're going to keep making the case and try to get that done. Brian Dees, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. We are standing by for a news conference in New York City where authorities will update on that terrifying subway shooting earlier today. Also had President Biden may be keeping U.S. troops out of Ukraine, but that's not stopping another group of Americans from stepping up. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. And welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 48 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. Tonight, we're covering two major stories. Any moment, we expect an update from officials in New York City where a manhunt is now underway for the suspect behind a horrifying attack on the New York City subway this morning in rush hour, right before 8.30 a.m. Police say at least 29 people were hurt, 10 of them shot, five in critical condition, after a man put on a gas mask, took a canister from his bag, and indiscriminately began shooting as smoke filled the train. We're going to have much more on that story in a moment. Back here in Ukraine, much of the focus is on the fight for Mariupol in the south. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said this afternoon that Ukrainian forces are still fighting for control in that key port city, despite weeks of a relentless Russian assault on that city. The Ukrainian government says the death toll there is colossal. Nearly 22,000 people, that's an estimate, could be gone, though we will not know the enormity of Russia's horrors until the blockade around Mariupol is clear. Today, the Biden administration confirmed it is looking into reports that Russian forces have used what may be a chemical weapon in Mariupol. The military governor of the region says three people were taken to the hospital. All three are expected to survive. Let's get right to CNN's Fred Pleitman, who's on the ground in the capital of Kiev. And Fred, the Russians seem to be gearing up for this massive offensive expected in the east. How are the Ukrainians preparing? How are they reacting? Hi there, Jake. Well, the Ukrainians are saying that they're absolutely aware of those Russian troop movements that are coming through the Donbass region and seemingly positioning close to where the Ukrainians are in the east of the country, possibly trying to cut Ukrainian forces off. 
The Ukrainians are saying they're aware of that, but they have their own battle plan. And they also say that they are ready and are moving forces to the east as well. At the same time, here in the Kiev region and in some other regions in Ukraine as well, they've launched a large-scale investigation into possible Russian war crimes. I caught up today with the general prosecutor of this country, and we were together at a mass grave in Bucha. And I want to warn our viewers that some of what you're about to see is extremely graphic and very disturbing. Even as Russian troops mass in eastern Ukraine for what the U.S. believes will be a huge offensive, authorities in Kiev continue digging up bodies. Painstaking work that goes hand in hand with investigating Russia's attack on Kiev and possible crimes committed by Vladimir Putin's invading troops. Prosecutor General Irina Venediktova is leading the charge. She spoke to me at the edge of a mass grave in the Kiev suburb of Bucha. For us, the best motivation is justice. And of course, we understand that all Ukrainians want fast justice, true and fast justice. That's why we do everything to document all evidence, all facts of war crimes that we have here in Ukraine. French forensic investigators are now also on the scene, not because Ukraine lacks expertise, but because Kiev wants to be as transparent as possible in the face of Russian disinformation efforts. We want to do our job absolutely open with standards of international humanitarian law. It's very high standards. That's why when here we have our international colleagues, we understand that they can see everything. They can see real situation here, real graves, real dead bodies. After Ukrainian forces managed to expel Russian troops from around Kiev and some other areas they'd occupied in Ukraine, authorities have discovered scores of dead bodies. Today, another six found in just one basement outside Kiev. The prosecutor tells me they are collecting evidence in thousands of cases. Now we started more than 6,000 cases. Uh, it's cases, it's crimes, uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, aggression crimes. And we started on the first days of war, we started the case about genocide. All this as Russia still claims its forces that invaded Ukraine have not harmed any civilians. On a visit to a spaceport with Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, Russian President Vladimir Putin again claimed his forces are fighting against would-be Ukrainian Nazis in what he calls a, quote, special operation. The goals are absolutely clear and they are noble, he said. I said it from the beginning and want to draw your attention to that. There are some in the U.S. at the top level who have spoken about a possible war crimes trial against Vladimir Putin. Is that something you think could ever be possible and it's something that you're working towards to provide evidence for? Uh, of course, I think that uh, everyone understands who is responsible for this war. That's why we do everything to uh, fix, to document uh, evidences. But we are here in Ukraine and actually understand who is responsible for all of this. The investigators' work is complicated by the fact that the war is still going on and they can't reach many devastated areas like the encircled city of Mariupol, where Ukraine's president says tens of thousands have been killed. But Irina Benediktova says no matter how long it takes, she will press on. 
it's actually extremely important because if we will be successful as a prosecutors, I sure that we can stop such aggressions in the future. And Jake, you saw me and the prosecutor general there standing at that mass grave with dead bodies all around us. And I can tell you, from having been in Bucha uh, for uh, many, many times now, that there were a lot of dead bodies that have been recovered there and that are continuing to be recovered there. Well, Vladimir Putin, at that same event that we saw there in that report on that spaceport with Lukashenko, said he believes everything that we've just shown there is fake. Jake? All right, Fred Pleitkin bringing us the facts and the truth in Kyiv. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN correspondent Matt Rivers, who joins me now uh, in Lviv. And Matt, we've heard these unconfirmed reports of a, a chemical weapon of some sort used by the Russians against Ukrainians in Mariupol on Monday. What do we know about this? Well, I, I think at this point it's safe to say that it's, it's murky. We don't have all of the details yet. And the Ukrainian officials themselves are saying exactly that. Uh, there's no smoking gun, as it were, quite yet. That said, they do have suspicions that there was a chemical attack in Mariupol. This coming from the Ukrainian deputy minister of defense, and I want to be really specific about her words. She, she said, we are trying to understand what was used. Based on the preliminary data, there's an assumption that these could have been phosph uh, phosphorus munitions, but the official information will follow later. If they are phosphorus munitions and they're used in a way that attacks civilians or soldiers, is clearly a violation of international law. It's clearly a chemical attack. And it's the kind of thing that we've heard from officials since the beginning of this war, both here in Ukraine, in the U.S., in the U.K. This is what they have been afraid of were the Russians to do this. But again, the U.S. not confirming this so far. There's nothing solid that this actually happened. But it's a suspicion that needs to be investigated. And the Pentagon press secretary, John Kirby, said today that Russians have proved willing to use chemical weapons in the past if it is proven that they did, in fact, have the U.S. and Western allies said what the consequences will be. They say that there will be far-reaching consequences, but they are keeping it pretty close to the vest in terms of exactly what those are going to be. I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on countries like Germany, like the United States, like the U.K. What are they going to do to ramp up what they've done so far? Because if chemical weapons, the use of chemical weapons truly is a red line, well, how do you back that up? and ramp up sanctions or whatever you're going to do to make it known this is not okay. So does that mean that Germany will maybe take a closer look at actually stopping energy imports from Russia? Is the United States going to be more willing to send airplanes, you know, warplanes into Ukraine? Those are the kinds of questions that I think policymakers in these countries need to be asked if it truly is a red line and we get the kind of overwhelming evidence that this chemical attack did in fact happen. Yeah, and let's turn to the evacuation efforts because there's been Ongoing heavy fighting in Mariupol for weeks. Uh, are civilians in Mariupol, have they been able to get out? I mean, some. Uh, the numbers that we've gotten earlier this week, yesterday, uh, were just a few hundred. And if you listen to Ukrainian officials, they're saying tens of thousands still need to get out. And that's kind of indicative of what we're seeing, not only in Mariupol, but also in other parts of the country. Hundreds, maybe a few thousand being able to get out, but the threat remains for hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians, Jake. Yeah, Matt Rivers, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. I want to bring in uh, Andrei uh, Zakharulnyak. He's the former Ukrainian defense minister. He's now, he now serves as an advisor uh, to the Ukrainian government. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. The, the military governor Hello. of the Donetsk region says that as many as 22,000 people, Ukrainians, have died in Mariupol. Uh, Ukrainian Marines there say that they're going to hold on, quote, until the end, but there's no ammunition yeah. or food going into Mariupol. How much longer can Ukraine uh, continue to fight in Mariupol? 
Well, that's unclear because, of course, we don't know what uh, forces Russians will bring. If they're going to indeed use their uh, prohibited weapons like chemical or uh, what, what they're going to do. So our Marines and the National Guard Battalion is holding as much as they can and uh, they're doing uh, absolutely amazing uh, because they've been holding in the siege city for, for over a month. But uh, it's difficult to say. It's an extremely tough situation there. Mariupol, if it were to fall, would be the first major city to fall. Uh, if that happens, are you worried that Russia will gain control uh, over surrounding southern regions too, since uh, the Russian military controls Crimea? Uh, of course they will try to do that. Uh, it's difficult to establish control. They, they're currently already claiming to have control pretty much of all area around Mariupol and uh, up to Kherson which they say they control as well, but uh, we can see that this is a very partial control since, for example, the city council has a Ukrainian flag still there and, uh, and, and so on. But, uh, but nevertheless, they will try and uh, they will, uh, they will be very difficult for them because to keep control over a new acquired territory of like several thousand kilo, square kilometers, that's, of course, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. And uh, Ukraine is going to do whatever possible to make it more, way more difficult than, and at the end impossible. And we have a chance for the counteroffensive there. It's just a question whether we have enough weapons uh, at our disposal. Uh, and that gets us to the uh, question of the uh, international assistance and so on. But uh, generally, we can we can, yeah, we, let, can we can make them go. Yeah. Let's talk about that because President Zelensky says that the Ukrainians could end the Russian siege of Mariupol if Ukrainian forces were to be supplied with heavy weapons from the West. What specific, specifically, what kind of heavy weapons would end this? Uh, we're talking about the artillery units. We're talking about the tanks. Uh, preferably the fighter jets and uh, and also what is called multi-launch rocket systems. Uh, it's a it's a type of rocket artillery uh, which is highly effective in this in this case, and that's what we've been asking to our from our international partners, U.S. included, and the other ones. Uh, the thing is that if we have a, a certain critical amount of those weapons and generally the highly capable firepower. We can turn this whole thing into the from uh, random counterattacks or various counterattacks to the to the systemic counteroffensive, and if that happens, we feel that uh, Ukrainian army is way more trained, is way more efficient, and uh, well staffed, and uh, Russians will out of run out of options. So uh, actually, it is a question of having uh, enough quantity of right weapons at the right time, at the moment. Former Deputy Defense Minister Andriy Zagorunyak, thank you so much thank for your time today. Really appreciate it. Coming up thank next, you. the elite groups coming here to Ukraine with a special mission in mind. Plus, the other big story this hour, the manhunt for the New York subway shooter. A press conference set to begin in a moment. We're going to come back. Stay with us. And we're back with some breaking news in our world lead. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has announced that the government of Ukraine has captured a Ukrainian politician with very close ties to Vladimir Putin. Zelensky shared these photos on social media of a disheveled Viktor Medvedchuk, saying that Medvedchuk was detained in a special operation. Medvedchuk had already been accused of treason against Ukraine. He was under house arrest before Russia invaded Ukraine. But since then, his whereabouts have been unknown. Some observers believe that Medvedchuk, or one of his allies, might have been Putin's preference to lead a puppet government in Ukraine if Russia had been successful in toppling Zelensky. Turning now to the military assistance in Ukraine, 
that goes beyond what the U.S. government is offering. The Biden administration has a $1.7 billion supply list for Ukraine that includes Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, Javelin anti-tank missiles, ammunition, body armor, laser-guided rockets, and much more. What President Biden says he will not send to Ukraine is active-duty U.S. troops. But that does not mean others aren't filling that void. Current U.S. service members are not in Ukraine. But U.S. veterans? They damn sure are. At an undisclosed location in Ukraine, a retired U.S. Marine, veteran Colonel Andrew Milburn, is training Ukrainians to fight the Russians. Milburn knows what it's like on the front lines. An American who grew up in the UK, he has served in Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, and Iraq. You know, I went through the Battle of Fallujah, um, but I would rather do that again than, uh, than confront, uh, you know, a 12-hour barrage of Russian artillery like the, you know, the one we're seeing. Having retired from the U.S. military in 2019, Milburn runs an organization that brings in other former Special Forces members to assess the needs of various militaries. After losing the Battle of Kyiv, leaving behind devastation and evidence of atrocities, the Russians are now turning to the eastern flank of Ukraine to what will likely be a series of large-scale battles. Ukrainian military at large is more adaptive than the U.S. military. And I think I think I feel justified, I mean, uh, qualified to say that. This more open, less wooded terrain in the east could be more challenging for the Ukrainian military, which was able to rely on guerrilla tactics and calling in targeted strikes in the north. It is going to be a significant challenge. And Russians are much stronger in the, in the defense. Milburn trains ordinary Ukrainians to fight in the resistance as well as training more elite Ukrainian special forces like Mykola. Ukrainian successes, Mykola says, are because of help from the U.S., other NATO countries, and individuals like Milburn. Also, because of your help, we, we, we were quite successful with the first attack. So Russians leave our territory not for their own wish. They, they, they lose a lot of... Uh, troops, a lot of uh, tanks, a lot of arm vehicles. Uh, we were using we were using modern uh, European and American uh, anti-tank missiles, and they, they lost a lot. He knows what's to come will be tough. We need more uh, now. Yes, you're right. We have a pause, but it's not. It's it doesn't mean that uh, war is stopped already. Milburn agrees. The Ukrainians still need a great deal. They need drones, right? They need drones with a, um, a range longer than the DJ-1. They need secure radios because they need to communicate. Those are very basic things. They need medical equipment. Even upgrading the basic equipment they already have could make a big difference, he says. For a lot of times, they're, just, uh, they're, they're coordinating by cell phone or by uh, just, you know, kind of regular Motorola radios, which can be intercepted, geolocated, jammed. So anyone who's been in any Western military would be astounded. But weapons and equipment are not the only need. Training, he says, is key. They lack medical training. And, uh, you know, evidence of that is if you talk to Ukrainian medics, um, there are some horror stories out there. So uh, injuries that would be easily survivable in Iraq or Afghanistan by U.K. or U.S. Force, uh, soldiers, um, Ukrainians are dying from here. Milburn is proud of his time in uniform. He is proud to be a Marine. But there is something purer about this fight, he says, than the others he has fought. 
But frankly, you know, serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, especially Afghanistan after the debacle back in, you know, it was in August, I, it, 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 there was always a kind of moral ambivalence. There was always a feeling of being an invading army, all right? Even, even at the beginning of those conflicts, we thought our causes were good. So there was always that, it, it, there was always kind of that dissonance um, between the idealism that pulled you into the military and then what you found yourself doing. Here, there's no such thing. You've got one sovereign nation being invaded by another. And yes, to your point, when it comes down to it, it is evil, good versus evil. And this time I thought very squarely on the side of good. And our thanks to CNN producer Vashko Kotuvu for help with that story. Vital help. Couldn't have done it without him. I want to bring in Matt Gallagher. He's a U.S. Army veteran who served in the Iraq War. And he wrote as a contributor for the latest edition of Esquire magazine. Matt, thanks for joining us. So you went in Ukraine last month. You trained Ukrainian soldiers. Tell us about your experience. Do Ukrainian soldiers seem prepared for the fight as Russia now prepares for this big battle in eastern and southern Ukraine? So two other trainers and uh, fellow combat veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan and I, uh, Adrian Bonnenberger and Benjamin Bush, we were uh, assigned to a civilian defense force in Lviv. And we spent uh, three weeks uh, training with kind of everyday Ukrainians, uh, soldier, or, uh, not, not soldiers, uh, bus drivers, welders, teachers, uh, folks who in some cases have never picked up a rifle before and train them up on, on urban combat basics. Uh, for survivability, you know, because they saw we, we got there very early in March when the offensive uh, to Kiev was still underway. And it uh, the war seemed like it could be going anywhere uh, to include the, uh, the western part of Ukraine. And we just felt like it was necessary to give give some skills back to these people who never thought they'd be put in such a position to defend themselves, defend their families, but might very well have to. So President Biden has been emphatic, uh, saying he's not going to send U.S. troops into Ukraine. That has not stopped uh, so many veterans such as yourself from stepping up. Uh, Has the Biden administration been open to folks such as yourself doing so, or or does this have nothing to do with them? You know, one of the best parts of being an American, Jake, is we don't have to wait for our government to give its permission. You know, I'm I'm not not an active duty soldier. I, I got out over a decade ago now. Uh, but I still had some general knowledge. Uh, ben, ben had some real specialist expertise that we could give these people, uh, you know, fellow citizens of a sovereign democracy that are that are in need, that just want the same things we do back here in the States, some peace, some prosperity, uh, an opportunity to better life for their children. Uh, so we went. Uh, as for coming back, you know, I can only speak anecdotally. Uh, I encountered no bureaucratic or, or government resistance. They asked at at customs if I was transporting any weapons. When they saw the stamps, uh, the Ukrainian stamps in my passport, I was not. And uh, then I was back to my normal life. Hmm. You wrote a really interesting opinion piece for The New York Times titled, My Advice for American Veterans Who Want to Get on a Plane to Ukraine. Um, You note that so many veterans continue to have a commitment to service even after uh, they leave uh, the armed forces. Uh, They might be first responders. Some will want to go and shoot a Russian. Um, What do you tell those who want to help a veteran who says, should I go, Matt? Should I go to Ukraine? This is so vital. You need to know that you're going to help the Ukrainian people before you get on that plane, that you're fulfilling a need. Uh, My friend had a contact at the Lviv City Council. We knew there was a need for us. And so we went. You know, there's a a big difference between, say, an ex-Special Forces medic who uh, has contacts on the ground, wants to treat wounded refugees, train up civilians on combat medicine versus somebody just kind of aimlessly buying a plane ticket and going over there 
hoping to kind of find some kind of absolution for their, their prior, prior experiences in uniform or just kind of wanting to be part of history or you know, something kind of vague and notional. I understand those instincts, but uh, 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 unless you have a specific purpose already set in place, you're just going to become a burden for uh, a government and a people that is dealing with far too much already as is. Matt Gallagher, thank you so much. And as always, thank you for your service. Appreciate it. Coming up, today's subway shooting in New York. This happened in a busy part of Brooklyn with surveillance cameras likely everywhere. So why is it taking so long to track down the gunman? Stay with us. Turning now to our national lead, this morning's routine commute on the New York City subway system turned into a nightmare at about 8.24 in the morning. New York time, a man set off a smoke bomb inside a moving train car, pulled out a gun and started shooting as the subway pulled into a station in Brooklyn. Police say 10 people were shot. At least 29 people have been hospitalized, although some have been released. CNN Shimon Prokopes joins us now live from New York, where we are waiting for a news conference on the investigation and the manhunt. Police still have not found the gunman. But Shimon, you say they have located a U-Haul truck that they think might be connected to the attack? That's right. They have located a U-Haul truck. Uh, It's a van in Brooklyn, uh, not too far from this location uh, where they are now on scene. Police are on scene and they have connected it to the alleged shooter. Uh, What we're told in just the last few minutes, they made that connection because the shooter uh, dropped his credit card. They believe he dropped his credit card while at the scene here, perhaps when he was fleeing. And so they were able to connect him through that credit card, he used that credit card, sources say, to purchase, to rent this U-Haul, and that's how they made the connection. We're also told that authorities were able to use cell phone video, a video that bystanders had, strap hangers here on the subway had, and they were able to use that video to connect it to the alleged shooter as well. Pretty early on, we were given indications that authorities here knew who they were looking for. The question now is, where is this person? We're expecting to hear from authorities shortly, perhaps on an update on their efforts to find him. But this was a very scary, certainly very terrifying morning for many of the commuters here who were heading to work early this morning. We're told that the gunman had a high-capacity, several high-capacity magazines, and the only reason authorities believe that he stopped firing was because the gun jammed. And they believe this could have been far worse had the gun not jammed. But the big question now is where is this alleged shooter? Authorities out here looking for him. And we hope, Jake, to hear from authorities here soon on the latest in the investigation. All right, Shimon Prokopos, thank you so much. Let's discuss this with former New York Police Commissioner uh, Raymond Kelly. Uh, Commissioner Kelly, thanks for joining us. As you just heard uh, Shimon report, um, sources tell CNN the police have identified the gunman uh, because of a credit card that he apparently dropped Um, So tell us, what do you think they are doing right now if they know who did this? Well, uh, if in fact that's correct, I have no reason to think it isn't, that, you know, they immediately identified the individual who had that, uh, who held that credit card, and then the activity that was on that credit card. Then, because of license plate readers, which are really phenomenal, you can drive down the street at 60 miles an hour and pick up all the plate numbers on the street. Because of those license plate numbers, they were able to quickly locate where the where the van is. So, uh, you know, it's it's remarkable what technology will do as far as helping investigators uh, these days. 
uh, information that was put so, out there. Yes, he apparently had a Glock uh, automatic. He had two extended uh, magazines. Uh, some had ammunition. One had ammunition. The other, uh, the other uh, did not. So it looks like he uh, panicked and uh, ran out of the train, went up on the street, uh, uh, and he was not specifically noticed by anybody at that time. So, Commissioner Kelly, if they know who it is, or they think they know who it is, why have they not put out his name and, and put out his photograph? Well, I think we have to know more details of the case. They may not want to get him to uh, to run. Uh, we don't know, you know where he is now. Perhaps the telephones tracing will tell him where, where he is. But I don't think you want to put that out. Uh, to the public. They probably have a reasonable idea of where he is or where he's going to be. So they, they wouldn't want to put that out to the public uh, at large unless there's absolutely no idea uh, where he might be. So I, I, think it, I, I think they that have makes a sense. reasonable idea of where he is and, and, or as I say, where he will be. So law enforcement sources tell CNN that a U-Haul cargo van that police say is connected with the, the Brooklyn subway shooting has been located. Um, we don't yet know what the connection is other than the credit card fell out at the shooting and rented that van. It seems that there's likely evidence in that van, though, right? Yes, uh, I think they're being very cautious. As far as I know, they have not entered the van uh, as yet, but uh Obviously, they, they had it under observation. So uh, evidence undoubtedly of some sort probably in that van. And, and they haven't entered the van in all likelihood, uh, assuming that that's correct, um, because they want to make sure it's not booby-trapped. How do they make sure that it's not booby-trapped before they open the van? Well, you know, the robots are used in law enforcement these days to do those sorts, sorts of jobs. So... A robot could open a van and obviously could examine it uh, from a, a distance. I'm sure the streets would be would be blocked off. But you're right. That's the reason that uh, they haven't gone in uh, uh, quickly. And it's smart, smart, uh, smart policing not to do that in a rush. Witness descriptions of the suspect say he was wearing a gas mask. He was using some kind of smoke device inside the train car. This suggests to me, but obviously I care more about your opinion, that this was pre-planned. How might that play into the investigation? Oh, yeah, I, I think you're right. It was pre-planned. He obviously thought the smoke uh, was somehow going to help him uh, escape. But, yeah, that would definitely uh, be an issue in the investigation. Where do you get smoke canisters? Uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, where are they sold? Uh, perhaps, as we said, the individual uh, has some links to Philadelphia. Uh, probably the investigation is already uh, certainly involved uh, in Philadelphia. So, uh, it, yeah, I mean, he he has left a, a, a trail that is being followed up on uh, quickly. And I think it's just a matter of a short period of time before he's taken into custody. Former NYPD Commissioner Ray Kelly, good to see you again. Thanks so much for your insights. We'll be right back with more from Ukraine. Thank you. 
Continuing with our world lead, while the military struggle focuses on South and Eastern Ukraine right now, parts of the country that successfully fought off Russia's first wave are coming back to life. But of course, it is a life that has utterly changed. CNN's Ed Lavendera visited one such town. It's still near the front lines of the fighting, and it's become a hub for Ukrainian civilians fleeing the terror of Putin's invasion. One look at these massive craters in the small Ukrainian town of Bashtanka near Mykolaiv, and it's not hard to imagine the horror inflicted by Russian forces bombing this neighborhood. Bashtanka Mayor Oleksandr Bergovi brought us here. He says the Russian plane that dropped the bomb circled over these homes several times before unleashing the explosive attack. This is a simple, peaceful town, he says, with just ordinary people, no military. Farming is what we do here to feed the country and the world. There was a 70-year-old man in this house peeling potatoes when this bomb struck. What happened to him? God decided not to take him away. He tells me the man survived. Yes, For more than a week in March, this little town of 12,000 people fought off the Russians any way it could. Town council member Vitaly Homersky put out a Facebook plea that if anyone knew how to fire a cannon, they should race out to help. A humble force of about 100 people pushed the Russians out. More than 170 buildings were damaged. The charred wreckage was left all over town. But the mayor tells the story of one fighter who became an instant legend, a 78-year-old man who was told he was too old to fight. Instead, he made a Molotov cocktail and threw it at a Russian artillery system, blowing it up. We've asked to speak with the man, but we're told by city officials that they're protecting his identity to keep him safe. The town might have won the battle, but this war never ends. Bashtanka is now a frontline refuge for thousands of Ukrainians hoping to escape. Every day at this church, buses drop off refugees fleeing Russian-occupied areas just a few miles away. Zakruzetska Ruzlana says she left the city of Hershon after enduring weeks of bombardment with her two children and nieces. They break into people's homes every night, drag people out, beat them up. My neighbors were beaten up. Thank God they're still alive. They're probably doing that to scare people, so they're always in fear. It was horrible there. Every day people are going crazy, to be honest. It's intolerable. The children, the tension is terrible. You don't know if you'll wake up alive. Escaping alive is a dream, as we found closer to the front lines. The nearby village of Yavkino has endured weeks of shelling. You can see the munition and the shrapnel. You can see this, this building over here peppered with holes. As we meet with the village headman, it's clear the fighting isn't over. What is that noise? Yes, they are firing, he says. Oleksandr Kovriga tells us Russians fired cluster artillery at a group of young people charging their phones in this spot. They do it on purpose so people will panic, he tells me. We understand that there was a refugee, 17 years old, who came here trying to escape and she was killed? Lydia Dominica couldn't escape the Russian strikes, a young woman trying to reach Bashtanka. 
Her mother says she was studying food production and shared these photos so her daughter cannot be forgotten. And Jake, when we started reporting that story there in Bashtanka, we kept hearing about this 17-year-old killed by Russian strikes, but nobody knew who she was. Nobody could tell us her name. And we spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. I asked our fixer and translator, Kosta, who lives here in Ukraine, to help me do whatever we could to track down her family. He worked the phones relentlessly and eventually got to Lydia's mom. And that's how we were able to report to you her name, show you her picture, tell you a little bit about her. Documenting the atrocities against innocent civilians in this war is vital. Jake? Another great report from Ed Lavandera reporting from Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you so much for that. Coming up, the children of Russia's most powerful leaders, the elite, the oligarchs, they're used to living like aristocrats, but the good times might be coming to an end. Stay with us. Vladimir Putin often criticizes what he describes as the excesses of the West, but as Drew Griffin reports for us now, Putin's daughters as well as the children of other powerful Russian oligarchs. Well, they live like royalty, though the good times might be coming to something of an end. As Putin's atrocities continue in Ukraine, he falsely blames the West and Europe for the war. The whole planet is now paying for the West's ambitions and the West's attempts to maintain its elusive dominance. Yet his own adult daughters, sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury, both have reportedly owned property in the West, including this seaside mansion on the French coastal town of Biarritz. It's hypocritical to deride the West and their liberal values and then still rely on the West and their liberal values. That hypocrisy, criticizing the West while family members live in the West, is shared by Putin's inner circle. Kremlin Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov's unofficial role is Vladimir Putin's chief liar. Russian military are not hitting civil aims, civil targets. He spent his life in government jobs, official salary about $173,000 in 2020, yet has been spotted wearing a $600,000 watch, according to an anti-corruption group. His socialite daughter, Lisa, went to a boarding school in France, interned at Louis Vuitton, and posted pictures of an enviable life in Paris filled with fashion and glamour. I consider myself a person of the world. I was born in Turkey, lived in France, studied in Russia and France. That is, I don't have any favorite country. I love each place in its own way. So how does a family live like this on a Russian government salary? Lisa Peskova once wrote a tongue-in-cheek post saying she's the daughter of the main billionaire and thief of the country. The U.S. Treasury all but used the same language when they sanctioned her and other family members, saying they live luxurious lifestyles that are incongruous with Peskov's civil servant salary and are likely built on the ill-gotten wealth of Peskov's connection to Putin. Peskova called the sanctions a witch hunt on Telegram, saying accusing family for enabling war is madness, and she's proud to be Russian. Jody Vittori, Georgetown University professor specializing in illicit state financing, says it boils down to Russia's current governmental system, kleptocracy. A kleptocracy is merely a government that is ruled by thieves and where the policies and decisions made are on behalf of those thieves. It's a similar story with Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, 
officially makes $142,000 a year. But the 27-year-old who's been described as Lavrov's stepdaughter by the British government has been living a lavish lifestyle. Her name is Polina Kovaleva. The Anti-Corruption Foundation says she attended a British boarding school. Like Peskov's daughter, she's left a social media trail of exotic trips, filthy rich adventures, and high style across Europe and beyond. And she reportedly owns a £4 million property in London, according to the UK, where she's been sanctioned for benefiting from association of those responsible for Russian aggression. Though the accounting is almost impossible to trace, Russian anti-corruption investigator Maria Pevcha is convinced the apartments, the mansions, lifestyles, are the real salaries being paid to Putin's allies. The system works in a way that in order to keep those people who are willing, willing to be the face of Putin's regime, like the ministers, they need to be incentivized. Their salary is not enough. Georgetown's Jody Vittori says the people in Putin's inner circle know it could all vanish in an instant. He can turn on any of his regime at any time he so chooses. Your assets can be frozen. You can go to jail. Your family can go to jail. You could find yourself chased out. So moving as much as you can out of the country also just makes sense. As for a response to this from the Kremlin, Jake, a spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs gave us a very narrow statement that neither Putin nor Lavrov have accounts in Britain or anywhere else abroad. Didn't mention the family. And regarding the sanctions on Putin's daughters, that spokesperson said, Russia will respond without fail and will do so as it sees fit. Whatever that means. Jake? All right, Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Coming up, the rate of teens dying by overdose in the U.S. has doubled during the pandemic, but it is not because more teens are doing drugs. So what's driving the surge? That's next. In our healthly, disturbing new numbers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today, drug overdoses among adolescents in the United States doubled from 2010 to 2021. Doubled. Fentanyl, the potent synthetic opioid, was involved in more than 75% of the more than 1,100 deaths last year. The lead author of the study, published in the medical journal JAMA Notes, that's the Journal of the American Medical Association, says this spike is not coming from more teens using drugs, but from drug use becoming more dangerous because of fentanyl. I'm going to be back at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN tonight with more from Lviv and from our reporters who are on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you in a few hours. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on Sleep Number special edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 